we have been considering the wonders of our creation. And this is so important because this is the basis of guilt for the whole world of moral beings. Every single one practices, as we have said, the law of cause and effect. And as soon as we see a design, everyone concludes in natural processes of life that someone has put it there. Whenever we see regulation or uniformity of activity, everyone concludes that someone is bringing this to pass. And so God has surrounded us with all of these wonderful mysteries. I think there are two reasons why God has done all these wonderful things. In the first place, because God is such an interesting being. And he, he likes to do things that are beneficial and profound. We'll have a little more to say about this as we study the wisdom of God. And there we will see that the wisdom of God is a combination of the love of God or the goodness of God and the abilities of God. In other words, God in his goodness is using his unthinkable abilities to produce all these amazingly complicated things. And everywhere we go in our surroundings and in the universe, there's an unending complication of utter mystery that no one has ever exhausted in any single area of research. And the only conclusion that a mind can come to, there must be a being back of all these serene things. So we had quoted uh, Paul, we think Paul uh, wrote in Hebrews, uh, Hebrews 3, 4, every house is built by someone, everyone agrees to that. And so the net conclusion would be the builder of all things is God. So we were in process of trying to understand some of the mysteries. Life is an unending observation of mysteries. Here we began our life in our cribs and we observed little interesting things like our hands and our feet and, and different abilities to do things and we became curious as to the unending procedure of discovery. And so it has gone on through life and will never end. We're trying to just appreciate a little bit the mass uh, impressions that we can get from our observations. We thought about our wonderful personalities. And indeed, this is profound, isn't it? And then we said thought a few things about our remarkable bodies and their utter complication of interrelationships and design. We just have a little time to talk about a great area of observation, the things that we're surrounded with. So our third proposition is that Surrounding us are unending observations, all the way from the microscope to the telescope. And so we have folk who want to get smaller and smaller, and you know what great research is going on here. Then we have the other great area, the profound, who want to get greater and greater, because they perceive there is this un unimaginable universe that no one has, uh, has uh, felt that they've come to the end of the unthinkable universe. Uh, now, uh, this it is a wonderful thing that science has made our God greater for us as Christians, hasn't it? It has increased the concept we have of existence, and, and uh, we believe that it is the great being of God who is sustaining all these unthinkable existences. 
And so science has really helped us to have a greater concept of God, has it not? Uh, We just have a couple of thoughts here. So we have our first proposition, a thought of the vast universe and the unthinkable expanse. So here are these radar telescopes that bounce out into space and and plot uh, what they observe of the great uh, dimensions of the universe. Here we have in California uh, our 200-inch telescope, which uh, is recognizable in space up to a 1,000 million light years of distance. A light year, of course, is the distance that light travels over a period of a year, which is 6 million million miles. So you've got a 1,000 million times 6 million million miles as to some concept of the universe that has been observed. And scientists are not satisfied with this. The Russians uh, just last year, I believe, uh, completed their uh, 237-inch telescope, which is supposed to recognize out another 50% greater. Uh, The power of this uh, telescope, this instrument, is it can pick up the light of a candle over 15,000 miles away. Can we just conceive of of the... dimensions of the universe that they are working at. Then uh, you may have noticed an advertisement of a new type of space telescope, which is going to be removed from the uh, disturbing atmosphere of the Earth and is going to have deeper and more analytical perceptions. This will be about uh, six years away, I believe, before this is actually floating out into space. So just imagine the dimensions that that have been uh, conceived. Uh, One star is said to be so big that you can take the whole orbit of our world and put it within its uh, circumference. So we're in the midst of an amazing universe, are we not? We just have a few thoughts about our little solar system. And this is a small, tiny place in the universe, as we all realize. But think of the mechanics, let us say, of keeping our little world in its orbit. My. Do you think I ever supposed that I'd ever live, live to see a picture of our world out here in space? Isn't that humbling? How big do you feel when you see a little picture of our little world and realize how small we are upon this little planet called Earth? And so there's a lot of forces involved, however, to keep our planet in its orbit, are there not? So here we are uh, with the sun having a temperature, we think, about 12,000 degrees Fahrenheit. And here we are going in our orbit, about 92,900,000 miles of radius. So here's our little planet then. Uh, and uh, just think of the force that, we're, that is generated by movement. We're traveling about 18 miles every second in our orbit. Just imagine such a thing. Can you conceive of the centrifugal force involved? If, if you're going to keep a mass of the Earth in its orbit, there has to be a counteracting force. Now, there's no such thing as automatic forces. Are they? Oh, they're the forces of nature. Well, what is that? Uh, forces just don't originate from nothing. And so there has to be a counterbalancing force, is it not, to keep our little planet in its orbit. Then just think of the rotation. We're moving about 1,000 miles an hour on the surface speed. And just think of the centrifugal force that throw this building right out into space. If there wasn't a counteracting force, which we call gravity. And so here we have not only a, a movement in the whole orbit, but we have a circumferential movement of the trend, tremendous forces involved. So we can form some little concept of the great dimensions that, that uh, we have in our universe. 
Now, uh, just think of the mystery of our own little solar system with our own nine, with our nine planets. And there's going to be an exciting study here in, in 1982 because all nine planets, I read, are going to be on the same side of the sun. And uh, a whole book has been written uh, as to what they are planning to observe. This happens once every 179 years. How come there are these uniformities in, in existence? How come that they can make these long-term calculations and, and uh, have these observations? This just doesn't happen, of course. It is a matter of, of, of great force, a great being, uh, pr providing the necessary energy and control to bring this about. And uh, you know how accurate the time has been calculated because they perceive accuracy in the universe. And uh, so they, it's been a great research project to have precision of time. And now in our age, we have what we call the atomic clock. And this has a, a beat of 9 billion oscillations every second. I can't conceive what a 1,000 oscillations every second would be. So can you imagine such an oscillation as this? And it's supposed to have an accuracy of one second in every 20,000 years. Now, why are they so anxious for accuracy of time? Because they see accuracy in the universe, of course. And so we have the great observations that we see. A few more thoughts concerning our little world. Here we have an atmosphere surrounding us, do we not? Uh, a uniform atmosphere of 38% nitrogen and 21% oxygen and a few miscellaneous uh, compounds. And this brings into mind the whole chemical sphere of existences and uh, the different chemical combinations. Uh, uh, of course, everyone knows the chemical equation of water is H2O. You can't make H3O and get water. And, and so there are precisions of combinations of all kinds of elements and uh, many of you have been in the chemical laboratory and have written uh, the equations of the different compounds and, and how they combine with other compounds and get certain specific results. And you just can't combine the way you want to. There are certain ways that things will combine and, and ways they won't combine. So we're in the sphere of an utter amazement, are we not, in the, as we begin to observe the, some of the wonderful things that God has surrounded us with. Now here is a remarkable observation that only has been made a couple of hundred years ago, roughly. Uh, it is the matter of uh, plant life versus uh, breathing creatures as far as their exhalation is concerned. And uh, Joseph Priestley was a British clergyman and a practical scientist about uh, 200 years ago, and he was experimenting. He put some mice in a large glass jar, and he sealed it here. And he observed that after a short period of time, they had used up the oxygen there and would have died if they didn't have a change. So then he thought he would try something. So he put a, a, a few plants in the jar with the mice. And he observed that they just lived on and on and on. And so here is a mystery that's coming before observation. And so it was discovered here that, that we uh, inhale the, uh, we, we remove the oxygen and uh, exhale the carbon dioxide. And the plant life pick up the carbon dioxide and manufacture oxygen, you see. Here's what you call adaptability, is it not? And so God is counterbalancing uh, all of his creation and, and uh, working out these many, many interesting things. Uh, think of the interesting sphere of botany with all its 
its seed and its growth and, and, and the mysterious little elements in a seed that can be preserved. I read that some seed they think hadn't been exposed for 4,000 years in Japan, and yet when it got a favorable growing condition, uh, it produced the plants that no one had ever seen before. And I read about the same thing in, in Britain, where only three or 400 years, they think, uh, seeds were buried. And here comes another mysterious thing. When is it that produces life? Oh, the scientists think they can create life. No, they sure can. They don't even know what it is. How can you ever think of creating it? So here we have all the way around us different characteristics. Every single existence has its own power. And the plant life has to sustain itself. And if it has a root structure at hand, it won't develop very much. If it has a nourishment at hand, it won't develop very much of a root structure. But if it has a struggle, it may extend its, its uh, roots for 25 feet or more uh, to find what it needs. And how does it go for nourishment? And how does it go toward uh, the water source and so on? So we could go on and on in all the mysteries that we're surrounded with. When we come to animal and bird life, we are indeed uh, in an interesting sphere again. You have uh, read so many different curiosities of migrations of different creatures in their cyclic activity and uh, how can they perceive the exact time that they're going to do things and uh, scientists are researching this in a very profound way and, and it, it is simply not understandable how these creatures can do what they're doing and we have uh, different little creatures as you know who are uh, hatch out uh, in the northern part of our hemisphere and they will uh, migrate for 10,000 miles into this southern uh, hemisphere and then they will return, and these creatures have been caught and tabbed, and, and they come back to the same nests. And, and how do they ever know that this is a possibility? Then you have other creatures going over thousands and thousands of miles of ocean area. How do the creatures go from Alaska to Hawaii and even down to, uh, into New Zealand and so on and, and uh, go these 10,000-mile trips twice a year and then back where they were? And uh, this has been a great challenge to our scientists, and, and they're grappling with this issue, are they not? My, we could go on and on in interesting things. Think of some of the curious cycles that, that are in existence. Well, I don't know if anything more curious than the, than the butterfly situation. Here you have a butterfly laying its seed upon a milkweed leaf, and, and here comes a, a crawling caterpillar. It doesn't look like anything like the parent does it. And then this uh, caterpillar will eat its milkweed leaf. And then after a couple of days, it looks for a, a solid surface that it can anchor to. And then it will spin itself into this curious enclosure. And out of this uh, curious enclosure will come a, a butterfly with the precise marking of its parents, ready to have a new form of life and to, and to migrate. Then very soon it will migrate uh, several thousand miles. And I read about a professor at the University of Toronto and his wife who've been researching so much in the sphere of butterflies. They, they caught these little creatures and marked them and, and had address labels, uh, tiny address labels upon them. And uh, they knew they went south, but how far they couldn't establish. And, and uh, finally, someone, uh, they ran an advertisement in, in a Mexican newspaper. Does anyone know where the butterflies go? The monarch butterflies for the wintertime. And someone surely had discovered this in a mountainous area. So here you have about 20 acres of butterflies, billions and billions of butterflies, sitting on the trees in such concentration that a three-inch limb would be broken off by a mass of butterflies sitting upon it. 
If you want to look into this more, you can go into a publication, a issue of the National Geographic of last year. It has a, a development here. Now, here's the thing that they're completely baffled over. How do these creatures get down there, and how do they get back up north where they have... And they only make one that they only live for uh, a, a six months or a year, so they never seem to make two trips. And how does the next generation know how to get down where the former generation was without any means of curiosity? So, you see, people are baffled. The highly scientific personalities are baffled at, to, at to how to account for this. And uh, there was an article in the Chicago Tribune here uh, uh, an acknowledgement that they, the more that scientists in their highly educated pursuits are trying to analyze uh, the different creatures, the less they seem to know about it. They've tried all kinds of things and are researching in all kinds of sphere. And they just can't put together the mysteries of our wonderful universe uh, by simply uh, thinking that things are accidental and so on. So we know how this is put together. Uh, because we have such a great God that we just can't imagine the dimensions of God. And God can do millions and millions of things simultaneously. He can operate throughout the whole universe in, in billions of simultaneous actions. And, and God is acting like this as I see it uh, to make it impossible for anyone to put together the observable operations of the universe without taking him into account. And so God is operating this way, and God must smile, in a sense, at man's little pride trying to put together the universe without recognizing the existence of deity, because uh, God knows what he's doing, and, and uh, indeed he knows that you can't put together this universe without considering the great operations of his being. And he wants us as Christians to be happy over these things, does he not? My, we might go on to all kinds of relationships and checks and balances, we say, different balances of, of life. Uh, we might say a good deal about the laws of reproduction and, and how all these things and, and uh, the laws of beauty. Just think of how many beautiful things God has surrounded us with. This should tell us that God is a beautiful being. Uh, he's not coarse. Uh, he's not crude. Uh, and, and how can you mix uh, delicacy with dimensions that the being of God must have. This must be a most glorious thing for us to think about, that you can combine the immense with the delicate. You can combine the unthinkable existence of space with such a being who is so delicate and sensitive that even takes pains to make a snowflake that is six-sided. You've seen some pictures under the microscope, I imagine, of a snowflake. So here, why does this happen? Why do you have a little uh, glob of water that explodes into a snowflake? Why doesn't it get one big mass? Why does it have to have six? And uh, scientists haven't found any two alike, I understand. So here you have such a, a tremendous attention to the little and to the detail. What does this teach us concerning our Christian life? Of course it teaches us that we're in the presence of a great, wonderful God of unthinkable dimensions and precision. Uh, a God who doesn't live accidentally or are just simply doing things arbitrarily, but one who and delights in intense operations of intelligence and his wonderful being. Oh, I say, friends, uh, I think God wants us to be happy children. And it was a sad day when philosophy robbed the church of these observations because you go back and study the, the curricula of Christian colleges in the last century, you find that they often had uh, major courses in what they call natural theology, 
What can we learn about God? By observation. And now along comes philosophy like we talked about in our last lecture a little bit. You can't be sure about your observations. And they get all kinds of long words for all these processes just to confuse the simple conclusions as to the necessity of accounting for what exists. So we are entitled to say that anyone who uh, will become uh, intelligent must have a reason for the existences of everything that is observed to exist. So we certainly say our minds must be uh, brought to the conclusion that there must be a being uh, back of all of this who is adequate and able to produce the things that we see to exist. And so we can come to some definite conclusions, can we not? And this we try to state upon your page one of your Roman one on the nature of God. And we can certainly say that this great, wonderful being of God is great in power and energy. Now, I don't think anyone can have the least argument against the first four propositions that we are advancing here. Every single personality has got to account for the existence of these unimaginable details and utter complications. Everywhere we go, we see amazing situations, instincts. We might talk on and on about the beautiful and mysterious instincts of the creatures and how they go about their affairs with such uh, unthinkable uh, perceptions of various kinds. And uh, here we have the evidence of the great dynamic power of some great being back of all of this. Otherwise, how come that these great uh, masses are maintaining themselves in space and so on? And certainly we must say that there must be unthinkable knowledge and wisdom involved in, in uh, this being since... Uh, we try our design abilities to produce little things, do we not? And uh, indeed, uh, we can't uh, produce anything to uh, engage our attention in comp comparison to all the mysteries that God faces us with. And so there must be a great knowledge and wisdom in the author of the universe. Then there must be kindness and goodness also. Look at the delicacies that he surrounds us with. We mentioned the adaptability of taste and product. We need to eat to sustain our lives, and God wanted us to enjoy what we need to do, so he gave us the ability to, to taste things and then created objects to match the taste. And this is just a little sample of adaptability all the way through our observation. And think of the lovely emotions that God has given us in uh, this, would you like to live in a world without the tender emotions of these little lives coming into our existence and without looking into these little eyes that, that are so inviting uh, to every single observation? And think of the delicacies then that God has surrounded us with. Then the, there must be a recognition of the faithfulness of this great being. Look at the regularity. Look at the precision that is going on and how we can how they're trying to calculate and get more accurate all the time. Now, uh, some uh, pantheist may give us some arguments upon our next proposition, that uh, there must be a being above material existence in the realm of the spiritual. But we can uh, reason with them on their own consciousness because we won't find anyone, will we, who does not accept the reality of spiritual existence. 
Here you have a funeral uh, taking place, and here's the body of the friend uh, that uh, you knew. Uh, but something has left this body. There's the material body that we have. And uh, someone has left this body. And so there is an acknowledgement of a spiritual existence. So we can use this to reinforce that there must be a being who can originate the material. Uh, then uh, we have the concept of, of, uh, of different... Uh, occupations in our universe. We recognize that we are very limited in our uh, space here, uh, but we have evidence of God's operating throughout the great universe, do we not? And so, so we see that the evidence of God's great being then throughout the universe. Then we recognize how limited we are in time. And uh, indeed, uh, there must be a being who is not limited in time since we have evidence of the past and we have uh, such a observation of continuation that we expect there to be evidence of the future. So we can formulate these great concepts concerning God. And this brings us to an emphatic result, an emphatic obligation. Now, obligations is a word that's almost disappeared from many Christian circles. They use the word grace with the concept that there are no obligations to grace. And nothing could be further from the truth because grace means abundance and the more abundance of God's blessing, the greater the obligation, not the less. And the whole epistle of the Hebrews is written to show that we're more far obligated in this age than they were in Old Testament times. So how far afield can theologians often get? It's unbelievable as to how theological concepts can drive the thinkers away from their common sense. And so here you have the idea of grace being abundance of blessing. We're going to have a lot to say about this. And the epistle to Hebrews, uh, the word better is the key word there, of course. And the new covenant is better than the old. And, of course, it says that the new obligation is greater than the old and not less. And so uh, this is the basis of, of condemnation of the whole mass of the world. In other words... Uh, people are not going to be sent to hell because they've rejected the gospel. Many haven't heard the gospel. This is not the basis of guilt. It's a very great guilt. And you can be sure if you were raised in a godly home like I was, and, and if you had the spiritual influence that I have had, you realize how responsible. And the Spirit of God showed me that I was a hundred times more responsible than some boy down the street who hadn't had this spiritual background and this spiritual influence. But the rejection of the gospel is not the basis of guilt. The, the basis of guilt is the rejection of natural observations, a refusal to recognize with appropriate attitude the evidences we have of the great existence that must be. And so we say that here's the basis of obligation, an emphatic conclusion, that the, this great being is to be recognized for uh, his greatness. And uh, then the, the second thought is our each other, as we have said. And we recognize the existence of each other. And so we're obligated toward each other, are we not? And so this becomes the, the foundation of all thinking. Now we, we have a, a paragraph here, as you notice, the bottom of your page one of your section one. Uh, we have a notation here on some of the inconsistencies that, that come before us. And we wish that everything was perfect, but we find out that something has happened. 
And so this tends to cloud the beauty of our natural observation, does it not? So we have disappointments in life uh, and often calamities, and we realize we weren't created for these disappointments. We have our bodies which are limited so much, and, and we have such a thing as pain and deterioration and struggles and, and find different pestilences, different diseases that, that we find in our universe. And uh, we realize we weren't created for this uh, kind of struggle. Then we have, we're in a situation of tension, unrest. How did this ever happen? How, how is it that uh, there's enough in the whole world to make everybody happy? How come there is this selfish uh, looking out for everyone's own benefit and, and uh, re rejecting the, the proper position of our fellow men? And how come there is the hatred and the crime and even the wars that are loosened upon the world? We find that, that nature itself is not friendly oftentimes. And uh, different uh, situations come about. Uh, we have uh, the climactic situation. We have destructive forces uh, that seem to be on the loose in our, in our world. And uh, we have to labor for the needs of life. How come the, the weed structure grows automatically, but the things that we can use have to be cultivated and so forth? How come there's the bacteria? Uh, there's some kind of 150 kinds of coals that are available for us to have. And uh, you think of all the combinations of mysteries that are surrounding us with. And I guess it's a good thing we don't know too much about the bacteria we may be carrying in our own bodies, waiting to, to take over our situation in a state of weakness. So here we have different situations that would cloud the matter. And this would lead us to wonder, uh, how come that we can have the mixture of the beautiful and the disturbing? And here we come to the consciences then of every single individual. Isn't remarkable that to my knowledge, no tribe has been found over the world who didn't have some means of worship. Why do individuals worship? Why do they think of uh, recognizing a great being of God in some sense? Then how do they worship? Do they worship nicely? No, it's generally a very solemn and agonizing thing. A walking over hot coals, a walking over sharp objects, a, a disturbing their own bodies, and even offering their own children uh, to in fear to this great being that they perceive must be exist, must exist, and and uh, be in conflict with them. So we have we have the basis of guilt of conscience then throughout the world, and this would lead us to conclude that we have a part of the trouble. And this would tend to, uh, to exonerate the great being of God. And we would tend to say, well, it must be something that relates to ourselves that has caused the trouble. It must be that something that mankind has done has brought this readjustment and this utter mixture of the beautiful and the lovely. So here we have the beautiful and the lovely without any dimensional limitation. And then we have the problem of the, of the existence of these antagonizing forces and and so on how then are we going to explain this and here we say the good bible comes to us and wants to tell us just what happened and why we have this mixture of the good and the evil why we have this mixture of the happiness and the struggle and so it it wonderfully develops this whole matter and charges mankind with the, with the chaos that has been necessarily brought into our sphere of existence.
So we say all men affirm their obligation then uh, toward this great being of God. And this is the basis of all guilt. And we have a, a very important passage, particularly in Romans 1, 18 to 20. Look at the bottom of your page 1 and your Roman 1 of your uh, manual. And here we quote from Psalm 19.1. And, and the, the Hebrew scholars tell us that this is a very emphatic verb. Over on your page 2, uh, we give you what one of our leading Hebrew scholars said was the concept of the verb here. He says, the heavens declare the glory of God. And the second line, he indicates the third line there, is the way he translated this. The heavens are declaring to their utmost or are actively engaged in proclaiming the glory of God. And so we have the evidences on every hand that there's got to be a being back of all of this and is to be recognized. And a failure to recognize this great being is the basis of guilt. Then we turn to Romans 1, 18 to 20. You don't seem to hear very much about this very, very important passage. And uh, you remember the epistle of the Romans is, is concluding in the first three chapters that every single moral being is guilty of sin. And you have in chapter 3 of Romans, verse 19, that, that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable or guilty before God. Then you have in verse 23, all have sinned and are falling short of the glory of God, making a statement that every single moral being in the whole world is guilty of having sinned or chosen to live for supreme selfishness. Now chapter 1 of Romans has to do with those who have never heard the, of the biblical revelation. They've never heard of the gospel. They've never heard of the Old Testament. And yet they are with out excuse, the apostle says. So Romans 1, 18 to 20 becomes a very, very basic and fundamental passage. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteous of men who suppress or holding down the truth in unrighteousness. Uh, and so mankind refuses to be moved by these mysteries. So it's arguing with their own minds uh, trying to avoid the obligation that they perceive is is uh, pressing upon them. And then we have the explanation because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. And then verse 20. For since the creation of the world, the, the, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through the things which are made, so that they are without excuse. Consider the grand conclusion of the apostle by inspiration without excuse. This then becomes the basis of guilt. And not only do we have the observation, but we have the Holy Spirit working in connection with these observations. And so chapter 2 of Romans goes on in this area, uh, talking about those who've had biblical revelation. But then we have uh, how in, in chapter 2 and verse uh, 14, these Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law. These not having the law are a law to themselves in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. In other words, the Holy Spirit is operating throughout the whole world uh, to 
make it hard for people to reject the evidence that they see on every hand. In addition to this, there must be the love of God being manifested, mustn't there? Because Jesus said, if I be lifted up from the earth, uh, John 12, 32, I'll draw all men unto me. So it must be that the Holy Spirit is convicting the world of sin. This is what Jesus said he was going to do, didn't he? You have in the 16th of John, when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he'll convince or convict the world of sin. And so we have the Holy Spirit operating throughout the world to show the very great guilt of mankind for not bowing in abeyance and recognizing the author of this great universe, which becomes an obvious conclusion in the natural process of our thinking. So it's a tragic thing that there has been an omission, and many have never even heard of this important concept of obligation. So destitute is much of our Bible teaching in our day. So God has surrounded us with all these amazements, and he's operating throughout the universe with such utter complication that it's impossible. Even the highly educated scientists, with having had research uh, four, five, six, eight years on top of college and trying to research and, and all the series as to how the, the creatures can do the amazing things that are taking place and how there can be all these amazing uh, deposits of this and that. And so the, the world just can't be put together, can it? without recognizing a great center of existence. And this is the happy thing we Christians are to enjoy. You know, the devil would have us believe that we need the great explosive things. You have the whole development of the dope proposition. Let's try something new. Maybe we can get a rise out of life. And so the common idea of selfish individuals have their great peaks of climaxes and and, of course, uh, this never comes. It's all a grand delusion. And God wants us as Christians to live our lives and be happy over the little things. It's a secret of happiness to worship God and appreciate the little things that we have from His lovely heart. And I see, my Lord, you're so sweet to make that for me to see and, and to give me these lovely experiences. And uh, it's so feeding to our souls, is it not? And so relaxing uh, to worship in our God. Now, you're so uh, wonderful in intelligence to be able to make some of these mysteries. And so we could go on and on, could we not? And so we're so thankful that we can recognize the reason for all these things and, and have our times of precious worship with our God. But we can sit down with our fellow beings and go over these situations and ask them, now, can you produce anything like this? And uh, they'll have to admit that they can't, the, the utter... Climax of scientists uh, admit that they can't account for what's going on. Then we can say, well, now listen, uh, here comes this interesting book called the Bible. And uh, certainly a God of great power is going to be able uh, to reveal to us. And a God of intelligence is going to find a way, isn't he, to explain to us the situations of our observation. And a God of love is going to do it, isn't he? So you put together love and intelligence and you have the background of the Bible. God's trying to come and explain to us the situation. Is trying to explain to us uh, how God feels about the whole matter and uh, how mankind has revolted against his heart and made necessary these radical changes in our whole situation. And so as we sit down and reason with people, uh, we can lead them into an expectation that there would be such a thing as the Bible. 
and that God would be able to explain the difficulties so we could truly appreciate the great things of his creation. And so we say the Bible was not given to prove the existence of God, as we mentioned on your page too, but to reveal profound facts concerning the God that man already knows to exist from his natural observations and experiences. And so God has condescended, as we talked in our previous uh, lecture, uh, to reveal to mankind the whole situation. And so we say the foundation of all knowledge and experience of God is the acceptance of, its, of the evidence that our minds have been confronted with in our observation. In other words, if we only had the Bible, we, we wouldn't know how ignorant we would be of the nature of God. But we've all begun, we've all made these observations from the very time we're in our crib and these observations become a part of us, have they not? So we can't conceive how, how uh, uh, unintelligent we'd be if we didn't have these many observations of God's uh, wonderful handiwork. In other words, unconsciously we form some opinions, do we not? And this is the foundation upon which the Bible comes and wants to build. And so the Bible wants to enlarge our concept of God and, and try to explain the inner life of this is the secret. Oh, praise the name of the Lord. As we allow our minds to uh, perceive the extent and the greatness of our God, then the Bible comes along and talks about the sensitivity of our God. It must be the most wonderful thought we can have that the, this God of the great dynamic of the universe is also the most sensitive being in the whole universe. Now, we would understand this would be true because you've got to have intelligence for sensitivity, do you not? It is the intelligence versus reality that becomes sensitive when, when we can't experience the lovely things that God had designed for us. And so now we turn our attention to the Bible and we want to see what the Bible has to say about God. And you notice uh, we have these 19 pages in this section uh, digesting a great effort to be sure, uh, trying to gather together what we can learn about God from the Bible. You may have noticed as you pace through this section that we have a threefold division before us. In the first division, we bring together certain general concepts of God's being. We mention that he's a trinity of personal spiritual beings living in an endless duration of time who has the abilities of personality. Then you'll notice later on we use the word attributes, and we have the word natural attributes. A natural attribute is something that is true without choice. Then later we have moral attributes. A moral attribute is something that is true because of choice. And so under these three headings, we want to try to crystallize our concepts of the great being of God based upon these foundational observations that we have conversed upon. And here comes a remarkable revelation. We could never learn this, could we, apart from the fact that God has revealed it to us. We could never learn that the Godhead exists in a trinity of personalities from our observation of creation. We would form these concepts of the dimensions and greatness of God, but we wouldn't know this wonderful, wonderful detail. And so we see uh, the Old Testament makes provision for the concept of the Trinity and the New Testament reinforces it and defines it very thoroughly, does it not? And so we have uh, such a passage as Ephesians 4, 4 to 6, uh, mentioning the threefold personality of the Godhead. 
And uh, Paul writes here, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father, all who is over all and through all and in all. So it's an obvious revelation of Scripture that the Godhead exists exist in a trinity of personalities. Each member of the Godhead are able to act independently. Now, if you've studied church history and the different uh, gatherings of discussion that have been uh, existing upon this matter, you have run into an, a most amazing array of words. And as you read on some of these discussions uh, and think you understand what they mean, then they say, this is not what we understand, what we mean. And then you read on and on and on and try to understand what they do mean. And then say, well, this is not what we mean. Uh, we mean a trinity, we mean a unity, and, and so on. And it seems like I personally didn't derive much benefit uh, from uh, surveying some of these early conferences and arguments that took place over this matter. So why not just simply accept the way the New Testament presents it? a distinct trinity of personalities, each member of which can operate separately, each member of which can think separately, and can react and have emotions separately, and have a decision of will to act separately. This is the only conceivable way the New Testament can be put together. I understand there are some groups of Christians who think they can com complicate the whole matter, and, uh, and they have various reasonings processes here. But I wouldn't have any idea, not the slightest or tiniest idea, how I could read the New Testament without conceiving the beautiful thing that the Godhead are a trinity of personalities. And it is so beautiful to see the fellowship that's been going on from eternity among the members of the Godhead. Uh, we come to the Old Testament and we would expect, as we mentioned in your notes, that the Old Testament would emphasize the unity of the Godhead. Here were the nations of Palestine uh, professing the multitudes of gods in competition. Uh, you know, from Greek uh, literature too, they had a god of this and a goddess of this. And the idea of the gods were in competition with each other and fighting each other uh, for uh, recognition. And of course, God would have to correct this idea uh, that there's no such thing as a, a complication among the Godhead, that the, the Godhead are unified in all of their pursuit in all that they're seeking to do. And so the Old Testament, as we would expect, would stress the unity of the Godhead. But we find something very interesting, do we not? Uh, for example, uh, we have plural nouns and pronouns used. We have the beginning uh, verses. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. The, the, the word God is a plural, Elohim. The Hebrew, it's a plural noun here. And so it's reverence. So, so while the Old Testament does not specifically define the Trinity with the clarity that the New Testament does, yet it provides and allows for the concept of the Trinity and comes so close to clear and distinct definitions of the Trinity. And we also have the concept in, in verse 26, let us make man in our image, giving the concept of a plurality of personalities, do we not? Uh, we have uh, distinctions made in the divine being. We have back to Genesis 1, 1, and 2. We have the Holy Spirit referred to as active in creation. We have the members of the Godhead communicating with each other, do we not? You have in the sixth chapter of Genesis, for example, prior to the flood, my spirit shall not always strive with man. 
giving the concept that the Holy Spirit is a personality who can act and carry things out, and there is a communication and a fellowship among the members of the Godhead. So we see these remarkable provisions in the Old Testament and many more we could talk about. When we come to the New Testament, there can't be the tiniest question of the distinct revelation of the Trinity. Now, I understand what's going on here because 50 years ago, a lot of my friends were getting involved in, in the seminary training and so on, denying the Trinity, denying the virgin birth, denying the true incarnation of the Lord Jesus. I don't even want to cumber your mind by their escapisms in this whole matter. But when we come to the New Testament, we have positive presentation of the Godhead as a trinity. We have the baptism of dear Jesus, do you not? Here Jesus is down here being baptized in the beginning of his ministry, about 30 years old. And here you have the, the voice from heaven. You have the Holy Spirit descending in the bodily form of a dove, uh, resting upon Jesus. So here was the anointing of, of Jesus by the Holy Spirit. And Jesus was going to live his life, was he not, under the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Then God the Father's voice is heard. Can you imagine if we were out among these thousands of people being baptized here? Dear John was a strange man, John the Baptist. He came out of the wilderness. He had a, a divine knowledge that excited people. And they just couldn't uh, put together his profound knowledge, could they? So multitudes came out and listened to him. And mothers were being baptized in the acknowledgement of their sin and forsaking their sin and being prepared. And dear John looks forward to the coming of the master. And then he finally comes. And you know how John says, I shouldn't be baptizing you. You ought to baptize me. He must have perceived the serenity of our precious Savior, mustn't he? And so here we have this. Let's just imagine if we were among these thousand. And there we should see this immaculate person coming and being baptized. And we should look up and see the great manifestation of a dove resting down upon. What do you think we'd do? Do you think we'd have any words? No, you wouldn't have any words because there are no words to describe such a situation. Then on top of this, we'd hear a great thundering voice from heaven. This is my beloved son. Hear ye him. Oh my, can you see how God is solemnizing all the rebelliousness of earth and, and preparing the world for the greatest adventure that's ever taken place. And so we have the concept of the Holy Spirit, do we not? Jesus said he's going to pray the Father and both he and, and the Father are going to send the Holy Spirit. Then you recall in the second of Acts when Peter's explaining the gift of the Spirit. He said, Jesus having been ascended unto the Father, they saw him go into heaven, didn't they? Having ascended unto the high Father, they have shed forth this which you both see and hear. How do you put this together without a distinct personality of the Godhead? We have the baptismal formula, baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We have the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit given, do we not? And this is the wonderful age of the Holy Spirit. We're going to have some real excitement together, praise the Lord. Again, as we talk about the beauty and the what. Oh, my. Has God made some wonderful plans for us, dear friend? Anybody who wants to get intelligent on the New Testament is bound to have some amazing discoveries. And the only thing that can hinder our discoveries is an unwillingness to be humbled under the great mercy of God. I say if we're willing to be humbled in our minds, the New Testament has some unthinkable discoveries to send us out with power and energy. We're not supposed to be simply maneuvering in our own strength. This Bible has dynamic and explosive power to it, does it not? And this is the excitement that, that God had brought to pass. So here you have the operation of the Holy Spirit throughout the world at the present time. 
convicting of sin and reminding of the gospel and, and operating the different gifts. And God wants each one of us to be operating in some way. Uh, he doesn't want me to do what you are to be doing or you to me possibly. And we each have our own particular thing God wants us to do and we all work together. This is the concept of the Holy Spirit operating, is it not? We have the benediction, God the Father, love of God, the, the communion fellowship of the Holy Spirit and so on. And the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. We have the Lord Jesus uh, talking about the fellowship he had with the Father before the world was. He comes to the end of his life. He talks about the fellowship we once had. Of course, if you're going to have fellowship, there has to be distinct personalities who can communicate together, does there not? Then here is the most exciting uh, concept of prayer. In the Romans 8, 26 and 27, we don't know what we should pray for. Let's be careful what we beg God for. We don't know enough to beg God for all kinds of things. We better let the Holy Spirit guide us in what he wants us to pray about. And isn't this exciting? Since we don't know what we should be praying for as we ought, we have the Holy Spirit praying within our hearts. And then God the Father is sent to be searching our hearts and then communicating with the Holy Spirit as to what he thinks is best for us to, to receive from the heart of God. Isn't it exciting? The Holy Spirit moving and trying to guide us in our prayer as to what we should do as we do want to serve the Lord if we're his dear children, and then God the Father and the Holy Spirit are represented as thinking the matter over right in our hearts, mind you, and having the beautiful fellowship in our hearts. My, we can find so much to be excited about in God's precious word. And as I said, the only thing that will limit this excitement is our willingness to be humble before the great merciful kindness of God. How beautiful and how lovely. And so we say there are obvious evidences for the distinct trinity of the God. And this is so beautiful. This is so exciting. I don't know why anyone would want to argue this away. Because the idea of an eternal existence of a trinity in fellowship together. Now we have to be careful with our language. But if we didn't have with the, the beginning of all our thinking is the first cause. Now there has to be a beginning of our thinking somewhere. I know philosophers think they can eliminate beginnings. And they've created more problems than they ever would have done by accepting the beginning of a first cause. And created some unthinkable philosophical problems which most of you must have had some wrestling with in all the complications that we have been taught. So we have to begin somewhere. And we begin with a first cause. And no one can say where the first cause came from. If you could say where it came from, then there would be no first cause. And so we, we have to begin somewhere. And here's where the Bible begins, with the Trinity personality and beautiful fellowship with each other. Oh, my. Can we conceive of the fellowship and the unity that has existed from all eternity? Bless the Lord. I get excited. And my little personality is going to do it. My concept of heaven is to stand around the side wall, so to speak, and watch the fellowship of the Godhead. As they're fellowshiping together in all the beauty and the serenity of intelligence and worship and reverence and awe. And we stand, oh, my. Isn't this what... They said, Jesus, and up on the mountain when he was transfigured, Peter and John said, my, it's good to be here. Let's not go down. <laughs> it's so good to be here. Why is it so good to be there? Because they're watching Jesus. And they're seeing the manifestation of the wonderful divine being, aren't they? And they're struck with awe at the great dimensions of the Godhead. So it's such a beautiful thing, isn't it, to conceive of the Trinity of the Godhead. And so I as a Christian and you as a Christian have the privilege of entering into a fellowship that has been going on from all eternity. 
and, and just have the privilege of relating ourselves. And just think of the love. You studied the different words of the Bible concerning the members of the Godhead. The Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father, and the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of love. And you also have the word affection brought in here too. You know, the difference between objective, intelligent love and, and the beautiful word phileo, affection. And the members of the Godhead have affection for each other. Isn't that beautiful and lovely? In other words, affection is based on approval, isn't it? And so the members of the Godhead approve each other in their moral character and have their beautiful words. I say, praise the Lord. Here's where I get my charismatics, praise the Lord. When I try to humble my mind and ask the Holy Spirit to show me something of the dimensions of God, then I forget all about my own little spiritual pulse here of some sort. And you get so busy looking at the great dimensions of God as the Holy Spirit makes real to us, we forget all about our little old experience, and then we have a real one of contemplation. <laughs> Praise God. So there can't be any question about the Trinity, can there? And we have the, each one of the God members are called God. Of course, God the Father many times. And 1 Corinthians 8, 6 has something to say about the Lord Jesus too. And so we read here, there is but one God the Father from whom all things, and we exist for Him. Notice we are to exist for God. And one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things, and we exist through Him. So Jesus was active in creation. Isn't this sweet to think that the members of the God had communicate with each other in man's creation? And how we see the lovely communication. Isn't it beautiful to see the communication of the members of the Godhead with their unthinkable intelligence and with their depth of emotion. And I'm so glad for the emotional revelations of the Bible on the heart of God. I know. My theology just froze me over. And I lost out what I had before I began to study theology. I mean, as far as my enjoyment of the things of God were concerned. And we're so glad that the Bible is given to pull us back from these speculations and to show that God has the depth of emotion. So when we feel the heartbeat of God's emotion, how serene and how beautiful. And so we, we see the lovely things here. And Jesus said that he was true God. The, the Jews understood exactly what he said. This was the only thing they could find wrong with him, wasn't it? So in the 10th of John, Jesus said, I and my Father are one, verse 30. And they understood what he said, so they said, uh, they, why, Jesus why are you picking up your stones? Why do you want to get rid of me? And he says, well, we're not getting rid of you for anything except what you say. Because you being a man, make yourself out to be God, was their interpretation of this. Then the Holy Spirit is also called God, isn't he? You have this uh, problem in the fifth chapter of Acts, do you not, Ananias and Sapphira? They didn't have to give what they did, and they misrepresented things, didn't they? And they said that they were doing more than they were actually doing. And they lied to the Holy Spirit, you have, in verse 3. And then Peter comes to them and said in verse 4, You haven't lied to man, but you've lied to God. So in, in lying to the Holy Spirit, we're lying to God. And so here are positive uh, recognitions of this wonderful thing. Now, in our next lecture, we want to work over the concept of the unity of the Godhead. And please meditate upon the 17th chapter of John there. I think this is the grand scripture that opens up the matter. Verse 11, verses 21 to 23. I think this indicates the great moral unity of the Godhead and gives us such a beautiful picture of the great being of God. Oh, my, to study this way together makes us long to... No more of God, doesn't it? And gives us the excitement that there's going to be no end to this discovery. There's going to be no end to the depth of perception as God increases our concepts and, 
our dimensional realization of the greatness of God. Oh, I say, to know God is to love Him. Praise the name of the Lord.